Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning, Dr. Walker. How are you today? How's sunny uh, Liverpool? Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, and thanks for the kind invitation. It actually is sunny today in Liverpool, uh, in northern <laughs> England, in wintertime. So it's, yeah. it's quite unusual. Maybe it's symbolic of, of us meeting, um, you know, the brighter side of life. Yeah. Isn't it ironic? Uh, you're locked in and the only sunny day you can't go outside. <laughs> but there is a trace of irony, Dave, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's one of these things. It's for the greater good, I suppose. So it's, uh, yeah. it's one of the sacrifices we're going to have to take. No, I'm aware that you guys actually haven't met because we we did the webinar back in the lockdown and yeah. David was ill. Yeah. So, Dr. Walker, meet David. <laughs> Vice Hello, versa. Dr. Walker. Well, we had a bit of a chat the other. We had a false start a couple of weeks ago, and we were oh, talking. We were yes. talking about all sorts. We won't get into the discussions of Brexit and so on, but we had we had some political discussions and thoughts on on COVID. We we solved all the world's problems. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always nice to iron them out before we have the. Um the official sort of introductions so it's a uh, it's, it's both incredibly nice and refreshing to see you both today both looking so well as well in your in in your black t-shirt yeah. obviously I, I, like i said before i missed the brief so i've gone i've gone a shade of gray <laughs> don't worry we'll let you off so what what have you been up to in in lockdown we should we shouldn't joke about it but it's um you know what have you been doing to amuse yourself um well one of the things for me is a a, a traveling sort of medical educator is the fact that you don't really tend to get too much time and I know that sounds a little bit sort of against the grain because you're normally on a plane or you're normally traveling but it's times like that you're tired so this lockdown has given me the opportunity to do things which I've wanted to do but just not had the time and that is I've I've um, I've written a book I've um, started uh, a company on medical illustration I've um, started to write the skeleton for medical education in Middle East and North Africa. Um, I'm currently doing a, a, a postgraduate qualification in uh, medical education to supplement my clinical education qualification that I have. Um, I've written two chapters for a large aesthetic uh, a book for an Italian university, amongst other things. So. I have been busy on top of the million and one um, chatting webinars as well yeah. um, that you've probably uh, seen uh, over the last year. So I've you, I've been productive. Um, it's easy to roll up into a ball and 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 um, and think about this has been uh, a terrible time, but I've focused on the positives, trying to use the time and energy uh, constructively to 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 help. Uh, myself get through it well, that's amazing most people are dancing around on tiktok and flicking through instagram and you're writing books and <laughs> <laughs> syllabuses for countries so. yeah well, well done mate yeah jake if i knew to, if i knew how to use tiktok i'd probably be doing the same but it's just you know i've had the technical bypass so I, I, it's all right jake can show I'll you after that. the podcast he does some great uh, tiktoks yeah I, I actually have to say i don't think i've ever logged in i, I wouldn't know how to do it seriously <laughs> now lee um obviously um jake knows you very well i've uh 
well, I've had chats with you before. I caught up on the webinar. Um, people in the injectable world know about you, but for the listeners that maybe haven't heard of Lee Walk before, could you just give us a bit of a brief background um, about your your background? Obviously, you started as a dental surgeon, you moved into aesthetics, and obviously now you're a KOL for Tioxane as well. So just give us a little bit of a background about Lee Walker so we know all about you. Yeah, so um, if I can go back to come forward, I was a biomedical science originally, sort of back in the 80s for uh, the blood transfusion service in the in the UK. Um, so I was really interested in science, then went to dental school, uh, was a dental surgeon, and then got introduced into aesthetics by chance, really, uh, by a colleague who was a, also a dental surgeon. And he was telling me about Botox and how it didn't work and how all the patients were moaning to them because they had funny eyebrow positions. <laughs> <laughs> sort of intrigued me because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know, never heard about it. So I went and did the course, and it was the course wasn't the best. It was it was half a day of passing a syringe around, and you got a certificate of attendance, and then you went off. And at that time, on twenty years ago, there wasn't really that much literature on how to how to inject or how to do anything with it. You sort of have to learn on the job. So. I started with just family and friends like you do and then just carried on, really enjoyed it because I had that sort of skill set, that transferable skill set from dentistry, head and neck anatomy, injecting on the face each day, good talking to patients, communication. So for me, it was a natural, natural progression. And with this natural progression, my days of dental surgery dropped and my, and my days of aesthetics grew until the point where I got to that classical crossover of which path do I do I take and I chose the facial aesthetics path and uh, I've never looked back uh, since off the back of that um, um, I was using uh, different brands of fillers and that's one of the things which I quite like is that I used all of the brands I'm just you know I'm loyal to one brand now but I have used pretty much everything on the market before that and uh, Tioxane in the UK um, heard about me because I was doing small uh, regional sessions they came along and they just sort of like the way I simplify um, science. And and then they just took me on a journey, really, uh, with them. And I've never looked back since. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Now, you're a global key opinion leader for Tioxane. What does that role entail? What are your responsibilities, your duties? You know, how much is, are you taking out of your own sort of private injecting life? And tell us a bit about that. I mean, this is one of the... Again, it was one of those crossroads about commitment, Jake, and it was the fact that, you know, do I stay a clinical injector within my own clinical practice or do I do something something else? And now it takes up, I would say, around about 80% of my of, of my working time being a KOL. Um, I do have people now to work uh, within the clinic, so the clinic it doesn't suffer, the clinic um, it's moving along beautifully um, and it allows me to do the things which I, I quite enjoy. So being a KOL, what does it what does it mean? Well, it means medical education. It means a lot of traveling commitment, late nights, early mornings. It means being part of uh, scientific committees, research and development programs, publications, marketing strategies, um, pretty much everything. As I've gone through the years the company's been very good and they've they've just exposed me to smaller small areas and sort of built me built me up a bit. 
we're now responsible, uh, especially in the UK, for medical education. Uh, the same with the, the Middle East and, and with the international KOLs as well. We've got um, a Journey to Excellence program where we're taking young KOLs through a, a program, and I'm really proud to be part of that, um, to develop these uh, these young enthusiastic KOLs uh, and put them on the right path. Absolutely. I was just going to touch on something briefly before we move on to the topic of the day. And um, you spoke about your background as a dental surgeon and working with patients in the mouth, small areas, understanding anatomy and so on. Why is it that you think that there is still some stigma attached to people? um, Well, stigma attached to dentists that are doing cosmetics. Now, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but definitely here in Australia, there has been some of that. What do you think is sort of driving that? Because when you think about it logically, you guys are probably some of the most you know, well-suited people to be going into this area of of, uh, of medicine because of all of this training that you've had in that area? Do you know what? I, 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 think, the, I think the stigmas attached to people who like to be elitist or institutionalized. I don't think it's an overriding uh, stigma within the, within the UK because um, one of the things we tend to speak or, or, or the semantics or the language we use, we, we put it in a hierarchical order of when we speak about injectors, it's doctors, dentists, nurses. And we, we seem to, we seem to place people in an, in an order of either importance, rank or, or divine rights to be injecting uh, facial aesthetics. You know, I've always championed um, uh, dentists, dental professionals to do this because of, of like you say, the background. I think it goes back, I would say it goes back to that very competitive thing at university where you have a medical and a dental school and the medics would call a dentist failed medics and <laughs> we would just call them stupid because they work sort of 24 hours, we do nine to five and we earn more money. So I think there's always that little thing about about sort of the choice of career pathway because you, you need you need the same grades for, for both. Um, but I... I I just think about it now as aesthetic medicine. And one of the analogies I put it in is um, it's like if you take people from different sporting backgrounds. So if you're a runner, if you're a jockey, a boxer, a swimmer, and then you go skiing, it's how good you are at skiing. It doesn't matter about your, about your original background. So I don't think that should, should make any, any difference in, in how you treat your patients, what your aesthetic outcomes are, or how safe you are as an injector. It's, it's what you're doing with aesthetic medicine, which, which counts. Yeah. So that kind of leads nicely into, I guess, the loose topic of, of this podcast, but is what is the evidence for how and why we inject? I mean, we're going to go off on a, a few tangents for sure with this, but you mentioned earlier that your, your first course was pretty basic, pretty um, non-evidence-based potentially. Tell me exactly what you did in your course, because it sounded very similar to mine, and then we can reflect on how we're teaching people today. I don't want to tell you. I'll probably get stuck <laughs> off or, or someone will get arrested. <laughs> and I can tell you, I won't tell you where it was. It was in southern England, so so they'll have to pinpoint sort of uh, the GPS quite wide over there. <laughs> um, what it was, you would you went to somebody's house, and it was a large house with a large driveway. Oh, right with some very expensive German machinery parked outside. So you went inside the house and it was a TV. So this is how long it was. The TV was on a stand on the floor. (laughs) And um, I remember there was a a treatment bed, like a physio bed in the middle of of, of a a lounge. And um, the guy gave a uh, PowerPoint presentation on his TV. 
for around about 42-inch TV or something like that. And I remember the room was that full of people. I was laying on the floor, like, you know, when you're a kid and you're watching a cartoon and you just lay there? So we we watched this PowerPoint for around like 30 minutes. Then this poor patient was almost dragged onto the bed. And then it was like a fraternity type of party. The syringe was passed around. Like a baton. And we all got to... yeah, we all got injection points and then passed it on. And that was it. So the course was expensive because it was niche. The Botox was expensive at that time because it was still a niche treatment. So everything was very expensive. And you're thinking, where am I going to get the patient from? But more importantly, on the way back on the train, I was thinking, how do I do it? I can't remember, you know, can't remember what the dilution was. We didn't get any handouts or anything. So that was my training and one of the things that I found when I got back is that I found Alistair and Jean Carruthers' uh, Middle Botox Bible manual. So I started to use that as a guide to, to help me. Um, and it was your nearest and dearest, you know. It was almost experimental. It was like, oh, you've got some lines? Come here, I want to use this. And then <laughs> you would watch your family and friends sort of with a ptosis or with a funny eyebrow. I remember doing the same with my family and friends. So that so that's that's where it was. There was no there was no um, there was no formal pathway. There was no opportunity for questions. There was no feedback. There was no evaluation. Things which are critical within medical education, basically point and shoot. And and I think there is still aspects of point and shoot injecting today, Jake. Um, if I'm if I'm completely honest. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll come on to how Tioxane does things in your mentorship program later, but. Generally, if you do a bit of a Google, particularly in the UK, there's hundreds of courses. It's kind of amazing how many courses there are in the UK compared to, say, here in Australia. But it seems to be pretty similar. It hasn't hugely moved on. You'll meet in a hotel, you'll sit around a table, you'll get like a little you know, pamphlet of stuff to take home, you do a PowerPoint, and then there's some patients wheeled out and you point and shoot. What yeah. do you think of that? And I think... I don't, I, I don't agree with it. I understand it because, you know, as most medical professionals, you do have a transferable skill set. You know, you have that medical knowledge, you have the manual dexterity, you have, uh, you know, the patient communication skills, the behavioral science, the code of ethics that medical professionals should hold. You have all those things there. And I think that's where training goes wrong, in my opinion. I think that they think that we've got all the necessary information to do things predictably and safely. And I don't think that's the case. I think there should be standards of competency like we do within medicine and dentistry. We have, you know, we have appraisals, we have evaluation, we have all of these, you know, continuing medical education when it comes around our own profession. But within aesthetics, it's a one-day course and, and you get a certificate, not of competency, and this is important, we get a certificate of attendance. So it doesn't mean that we're competent or our performance has been very good. It just means that we turned up on the day and sat in a room for uh, a, a designated number of hours. Yeah. So I think one I always say to uh, people is that typically if you're talking about toxin training. Toxin training for me is bad drivers teaching bad drivers how to drive bad because it's all historical information just passed down there is no new concepts no new ideas no understanding of anatomy it's just 
place it here, this amount of units. It's all very binary. It's all metrics. How much, how deep, those type of things. And it's, for me, it would be at least a week. But no one wants to pay for a week course. No one wants to take time off for a week. Nobody wants to do, you know, nobody wants to come back in a month to look at their results. Because we're working in a private sector. And there's normally a, a financial implication based around that. Yeah. And it's a very rewarding career from from a monetary uh, position. And I think that's where people go wrong. They're, they're in it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Those people, and they won't be around for a very, very long time. So longevity is key uh, along with patient safety. So I, I don't think, I think, I know you're going to get onto it. So, I'll, you know, I'll say it now. We have been guided far too long on eminence and not evidence, and it's slowly, slowly changing now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't speak to the UK. I only sort of hear anecdotally by talking to people like you and some of our other guests in the UK and the stories that Jake's told me about his time there. But particularly in Australia, we spend so much time worrying about who should be injecting and who shouldn't be injecting. When it seems to me from a layperson who's involved in the industry looking in, it's like if we put as much effort into trying to, you know, work out who has the right to inject and whether it's nurses or doctors or plastic surgeons or whatever, if we actually put that energy into actually coming together as a industry and putting some standards in place that we can all agree upon and focus on training, wouldn't that be a much better outcome than all the effort we're putting into on this turf war and trying to say who can and can't? Exactly. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think there's... Uh, some truer words being said, David, and exactly person. It's not coming from uh, a medical uh, practitioner. You can you can look objectively from outside the bubble, so to speak. But remember, these things. There's areas. Jake will tell you within medicine and even dentistry, there is areas of elitism, institutionalism, and divine right to do these things. If you look at certain countries, then only plastics and dermatology uh, can inject. Botox and fillers. It's almost a monopoly of, of, of the industry within certain certain countries. And you've got to ask, you know, where's the data to suggest that a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist does things better or safer than a dentist or a GP or a nurse? Where's the data to suggest that? It's just local laws made up by uh, their regulatory bodies. And, you know, they, they're going to have to justify those that me as a dentist i mean one of the things that i've found it difficult over the years is acceptance especially at the level that that i teach at because i teach to pretty some pretty eminent people professors people pretty high up in the in the aesthetics industry and they look at my previous job title and think you know what what can this guy tell me he's a dentist he doesn't know too much and i I found that over the years i had to fight and fight pretty hard to be accepted within within this community at that level which I was operating in because I can't think of many. I don't think I don't I don't know about you, uh, Jake. I can't think of many dental surgeons across the world who hold a KOL position. I I, I really I don't I I don't know if Allegan holds no. anybody, but I certainly know that there's not many KOLs across the world who are dental surgeons. And they you seem got, to be. Um... I don't know who he trains for or maybe he doesn't, but you've got Bob Carner who's done very well for himself in the UK. But it's few and far yeah, between, not many people. Exactly. So, um, 
I think, you know, as soon as we begin to understand that aesthetic medicine is a completely separate area to other areas of medicine, dentistry and nursing, and it's a unique environment and it should be governed, regulated. I feel personally, my own opinion, it should be a vocational degree. It should be, it should form part of the undergraduate curriculum. And if you want to be an aesthetic uh, practitioner, then you set off on a full to be that person. You come out with a, with a vocational degree at the end of it, just like if you do medicine, dentistry, physio, nursing. Yeah. The same. It's going to be difficult to, you know, grandfather that and, and draw that line in the sand and be like, okay, you guys who are already working, carry on. And you guys who are just coming through, sorry, you've got a degree well, now. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, always putting the genie back in the bottle is always a difficult task, but maybe, you know, again, we're solving all the problems here, but, you know, maybe there's a, a situation where people that are already working in the industry have a period of time to continue working, but they've got like a, you know, like a grace period to prove their competency over a period of time so that they can continue. So they're already, you know, this is their livelihood, but then for people that aren't already in, maybe you move the rule moving forward. I mean, there's ways to, there's ways to skin the cat if everyone comes together and is willing to be sensible. Yeah. Uh, again, there's, there is postgraduate qualifications, but they're not, they're not testing your competency. They're, they're testing your academic prowess or your knowledge based around theoretical aspects of the subject. And although your patients like it, you can be the brightest star in the sky, but if you can't inject, you can't inject safely, then it's pretty pointless. I remember when I was at medical school, I don't know if you had to do this um, with dental school or, or, or you're doing it for deoxane or in your own training, you know you've got your own training academy, that when we learned a practical skill and we were examined on it at the end of the year, we had to do something called an OSCE, which is yes. basically an observed exam. And, you know, you might not be perfect, but there are tick boxes for things that you have to demonstrate and certain things were a no-no. If you, if you didn't or did do that, you're out. I wonder whether something like that would be a great starting point um i don't know i don't know how you do that do you do that with the pharma companies do you do that with the local regulatory bodies i don't know who puts their hand up but someone has to the pharma companies are pharma companies at the end of the day and i think what we forget jake is that we think of them as being training companies they're not they're, they're selling a product companies they it's one of those it's one of those things and oski is a great uh, a great way to assess um knowledge in both ways it's 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 the classical sort of uh regurgitation of knowledge but it's also the clinical skills and clinical reasoning and as well and i think it's a more of an all-rounded test rather than you know putting something in front of someone you know and getting to tick a couple of boxes those type of things so like like you said it's pretty it'd be pretty difficult to um implement that and it would be expensive and time consuming but at the end of the day, it would be it would be worth it. But standardisation of training, I think it's going to happen at some point, and it's going to be difficult, and people aren't going to like it. But it's a fact of life. Uh, we need to improve, and we can only improve if we measure. So again, it's 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 incredibly important that we have objective criteria to meet, and and then we can all move forward together. Now, flipping this other way, from a patient's perspective, you know. This is pretty stupid, but most people do their research on Instagram. They'll flick through, you know, some injectors profiles and they might, 
you know, get a feel for who they are and, and base it on some before and afters. But how should either the injector themselves prove their competence in whatever way, or how should a patient sort of do their research to, to, to sort of check out that someone is legit? I mean, where do, that's a conundrum as well, isn't it? I think it's the biggest one of the biggest conundrums we have at this at this current time is is that patient and 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 practitioner virtual interaction is when because we're very visual creatures and we seem to be absolutely just obsessed and stuck to our phones and what we see on that is what we think real life is all about and one of the things I've always said about it before is Instagram or social media isn't real life. Yeah. It's it's the best of what we can show you. And I think there's a double-edged sword problem. One is that the patients will look at certain Instagram profiles and think that they would fit into the, you know, those amazing lips or those amazing cheeks or those foxy eyes or that amazing jawline. And the practitioner, they will select certain images or certain lies or or filter or manipulate images and you've got that sort of pseudo result where the two are meeting and i think this is where the problem is the patient will come in with these expectations the practitioner can't meet the expectations and there lies the problems it makes the rest of us feel pretty inferior when we look at other people's social media images and thinking how do they do that i've been injecting for 20 years and i can't get that paper thin lip to have amazing Cupid's bow and everything else with just one cc of fillets. It's, in, it's incredible. So I, I would suggest, I mean, radio call over the, pretty much over the same thing last week. And they were saying about, you know, how do you choose a practitioner? Well, one of the things you should do is you should go in on a free consultation and ask a whole load of questions, ask to look at before and afters, ask the be a super suitable candidate what are the contraindications what are your qualifications can you manage complications you know what's your complication rates um all of these things you know go and have a look around the clinic you know do they do they work from one site do they have a website are they registered with their regulatory body i think we should be educating patients to do that more than to look at an image on social media and go how much is it babe yeah, those those type, those type, yeah yeah hundred percent those those type of thing. I think that's the trivialization of aesthetic medicine. I think I think that's I think that's a huge problem, um, and certainly I think our regulatory bodies need to do a little bit more to help police that. One of the things that seems to be plaguing the, the UK is um, people that aren't doctors or nurses or dentists. You've got beauticians potentially able to inject fillers. I know they still can't do tox, but, you know, a lot of the major complications that we see with injectables is related to fillers. And when you talk about occlusions and, and things like that. So, I mean, how true is it? I mean, is, is this common? Are we seeing major complications coming out of this or is this just the media, you know, sort of hyping up something that's not really a major issue? Just just for the record, complications can come from 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 any from anyone, whether you're consultant plastic surgeon yeah. or whether you're uh, or whether you're a garbage collector, they, it can happen. It's just part and parcel of of everyday life. But we do have a, a real big problem in the UK with non medical injectors. And you mentioned um, toxin and filler. 
this is things like thread, it's things like deoxycholic acid, it's things like lasers. Uh, it's pretty much everything a, a, across the board. And what we're seeing is of three resources to help with complications. One is that they have uh, uh, Facebook forums where people will just give terrible information backwards and forwards and the patient is not getting the correct medical care. They will refer it to a, a, an experienced practitioner like myself or they'll send them into A&E. That's it. They use the system as a as a safety net because they, you know, like we said, they, we have a transferable skill set because we have medical knowledge behind us. They don't have the medical knowledge. They don't have the professionalism. And people will argue to say they do have professionalism. My argument is if you were professional, you wouldn't be doing it. You wouldn't be completely outside your comfort zone in an area of uh, medicine um, with no background whatsoever, no formal training, no qualifications, and no intention of, of ever doing that. So for me, that's unprofessional. So the problem is that it's not going away. It's been, it's been happening with dentistry since the dawn of time with people whitening teeth. Um, and again, it's, it's, it won't go away until we cut the head off the snake. And what I mean by cutting the head off the snake is that we have unscrupulous medical practitioners prescribing for non-medics and it's very lucrative for them. So unless our regulatory bodies within the UK say any prescriber who's prescribing for non-medics and their courts, they get erased forever. That's the only because these people are earning that much money. If they get a thousand pound fine, they'll just pay it and they'll carry on the next day. It's down to the prescriber. It's down to these companies providing the tools or the resources to allow them to go on. That's crazy. It would be like me setting up a little studio taking teeth out or David having a go at doing his own chiropractic treatments on necks. You just wouldn't dream of doing it, but that's sort of what's happening, right? But that's what sets you out as a professional, Jake. You know, you wouldn't even dream to do that because your moral compass, your code of ethics is so very different. You know, you're not into it because it's this fabulous new career and you're really interested in anatomy or rheology or science. It's like, I can make so much money so quick. I'm just going to do it. And unfortunately, the patient is the one who tends to suffer within these things. Yeah. And unfortunately, again, I don't know about the UK, but, you know, I know here in Australia, you know, quite often you won't get politicians to get off their butt and do anything until there's a major outcry. Someone dies, someone has something horrendous that happens. All of a sudden it's a media shitstorm. Politicians want to, you know, gain traction in the polls and say, look, I'm doing something. So unfortunately, I don't think things are likely to change because trying to unscramble that egg would be such a big task. It's like, oh, that's too hard. But, you know, if there's a political motivation behind it, that's when things tend to happen from my experience. You know, the amount of VAT that gets spent on fillers, I think the government could happily overlook that because they're certainly not quick <laughs> on smoking, alcohol, lack of exercise uh, within the UK. And those are the things which are clogging up the NHS. So... But, but again, smoking and, and alcohol bring so much revenue into the government. So why yeah. would they want to? So VAT for Aussies listening is GST. Um, but, but am I not right in saying that if, if a doctor prescribes a drug, there's no VAT associated with it? Or have I got that wrong? But fillers, we don't we don't have to prescribe. Fillers. That's right. Yes. So, 
They sit in their own funny category in the UK, yes. So how do they get hold of them? If they don't need a script, what, they just order it off the internet or the well, pharma you, companies are selling it you to You certainly them. can. Do a quick Google and you definitely can. Actually, I've seen some people in our Instagram account trying to sell us. I get Instagram accounts. <laughs> I get WhatsApps from random Chinese or, 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 or other yeah, companies. It's same, very bizarre. It's, it's the same here. You know, you get bombarded with companies, you know, parallel imports, all of these things. And again, if you can make a fake Rolex, you can make fake filler. 100%. 100%. Now, just to balance this argument, and I don't want to sort of do this to death, but what is the actual evidence? Do you have any stats? I know they used to sit on, was it the ACE committee in the UK? And now there's a new committee that yeah. you're leading. That's like a complications committee. Can you give us some numbers? Like, can you say proportionally that these, these non-medically trained people have caused more problems or not? The short answer, no. Because one of the things, the, the shortcomings of ACE at the time was, was about data collection. We didn't, we were seeing the cases, but we weren't collecting the data. And that's different now with CMAC, the group which I chair in the UK now, is that we're actually collecting data, not just from a UK perspective, but from a global perspective. So we're starting to see these things come through. And we can't stand up and be righteous and pious about things and say, you know, non-medics are more dangerous than 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 medics because we don't have that data set available to us. So all we're all we're doing is, is just firing conjecture backwards and forwards. You know, it, it's it's it seems logical that you would have less complications, but is the reality is that is that true? Yeah, we don't know, Jake. So so until we have the data, and once we have the data, then we can present it to the government and say, look, this is the numbers which are um, uh, which are causing the issues, or this is the group, this is the cohort. Again, you know, I did, uh, I did um, uh, a Facebook Live a couple of weeks ago with a consultant surgeon who caused a vision loss with a cannula. And, you know, if, if, if that would have been a beautician, then the whole world would have been up in arms. Yeah, you've nearly blinded someone doing a nose job. You shouldn't be doing it, those type of things. So like I said, you know, to, to put a balance of perspective on things, complications are just a part of what we do. It's a numbers game. It's statistics. You know, you in medicine, you, you've you had complications. I in dentistry, dental surgery over the years had numerous complications because it just forms part of your job mm -hmm. and anybody who says they don't have complications in medical aesthetics is a liar or they've not done enough treatments yeah so this is the things we don't have the data so again we we, we can't start pointing fingers well, kudos to that surgeon for for having the balls to go up and talk about it and own it and and educate people i think it's amazing i'd love to do you have a record of that i'd love to see that we have a we have a recording on that on our on our, on our Facebook um, uh, page. We we do it we do it all the time. To be fair, Jay, we have practitioners who've had VOs, and we we talk reflectively about the case. This is brilliant. And this is the thing that you don't see within a case study. You don't see them saying, "Well, I was really hungry. It was the last patient of the day. I was very tired. I injected a bit too fast." You know, the candid, transparent views of practitioners on how you know how they how they've got through the experience and what the experience has been like for the patient. It's pretty heartwarming and, and very educational at the same time. All right. Well, at the end, remind us and give us the link and then we can send a thousand people your way. <laughs> I'd love to. 
Awesome. Now we're going to get into some sort of nitty gritty kind of evidence type questions because I guess as injectors, what what we've been trying to say throughout this podcast is that there's a bit of presumption and dogma and, and you know, sort of he said do this, so I'm going to do this without much evidence. So we're just going to ask some simple questions if that's okay. We're going to talk about aspiration. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we will come on to that. I was saving that up my sleeve because I know that Lee could do I, I, a I whole... Like, I like the way you said sim- simple question. I like the way he says it's a, sim- yeah. no, just a, a simple question and... And you looked at him sideways and said, aspiration. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we've been joking about this look. on our WhatsApp for about a week now. And, and I know we could probably do three podcasts just on aspiration. So we'll, we'll, we'll save that uh, just up our sleeve and maybe we'll finish on that. I know what buttons to push, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> now we'll start with some toxin questions. And this is an interesting one because I, I certainly didn't experience it, but there are well, David's experience, you own clinics. There were yeah. lots of injectors who were moaning about this. Yeah. Post-COVID, there were reportedly, not just in Australia, but around the world, hundreds of patients and injectors bemoaning the fact that toxin didn't work on their patients. Did you hear about that, Lee? Yeah, I've heard these anecdotal reports and it it makes me smile a little bit because it's, um, you know, botulinum toxin is the most toxic substance on the planet. It's incredibly uh, well-researched and... um, if it was the fact that it was 100 people having a problem, it was the fact that, you know, Botox is the number one treatment, non, you know, non-surgical treatment on the planet. If it was millions of people having product recalled, then I'd probably say, you know what, it's an issue with the, the toxin manufacturer or something like that. Yeah. I think what we've got to look at is, you know, why are people thinking that the toxin is is wearing off? And it, 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 I think this answer is is twofold. Firstly, a lot of the practitioners may be inexperienced. They've lost the skill set, so maybe the dose and the dilution is is not what they've uh, what what they've used traditionally. Secondly, is the fact that patients in lockdown for how long? Months and months and months have no toxin left. They went crazy, by the oh, way. Yeah, yeah. You and know they're this. stressed. They're not sleeping. They're you, grinding their teeth. Yeah, you yeah. know, you know this. You know this more than me. Your patients don't like it when toxin wears off. And they jump in as soon as they see the first bit of movement. They jump on you and you do it. So you're working on an atrophied muscle with not full muscle movement back. And it tends to work for quite a long time. It's nice and smooth. They haven't had that opportunity. They've gone back to square one. They've been stressed. The muscles are very active. They've got hypokinesis within the muscles. All the lines and wrinkles are back. They're normally out in the sun. And you give them traditional doses and say, I've still got lines. And you think to yourself, well, normally I jump on top of you every 10 to 12 weeks yeah. and I haven't had that opportunity. Well, it's not working. It's easy to point the finger at the toxin. Yes. You've got to look at the confounding factors based around it. Have they lost the skill set? Well, has the patient now got hyperkinetic muscles? They've gone back to square one. You know, you're working on atrophied muscles in the past. You're using smaller doses. You see your patients regular. You were giving them the top up. Some people didn't even have the opportunity. I hate the word top up, by the way. Tweak um, to give them an adjustment to their toxin. So I think we've got to look at it in a little bit more of a, a pragmatic way, a bit more of a scientific way, rather than blaming the toxin. Yeah, that's the fact that our patients have gone back to square one. Yeah, Dr. Tim Pierce, who, who we've had on the podcast, and you know he does great sort of YouTube channel and his own podcast. He did a study, and I think several thousand people answered and. 
you know, just to sort of put the brand sort of um, pointing finger sort of argument to the side, it was all toxins in all countries, in all age groups. And it was just sort of a phenomenon rather than a, you know, a batch number type thing. So it's just interesting. I, th I think people's pent up desire for aesthetics and, and their regular treatment and not having it, they, they went a bit crazy. Yeah. Oh, as I said, you know, people were stressed, they weren't sleeping, you know, you're probably going to wear off, you know, you're probably going to do things in, in just going about your life in lockdown and stress, it probably makes it wear off quicker, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, I know that I was grinding my jaw a lot when I was, when I was sleeping during the lockdown period, because I'm worried about businesses and staff and being able to pay my bills and are we going to open and so on. So, I mean, I, that might be a factor as well. Yeah. I saw loads of, uh, Bruxist patients, um, sort of during that post lockdown period. What about you, Lee? Cause you, you must have a particular interest in that being a dental surgeon. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's the same across, across the board. I mean, I think especially with women, women are very different. They're very different. Uh, way of looking at themselves to to men and you know um you know you have to class really well and women you know don't but i think they spend more time in the mirror looking and analyzing themselves and you know thinking oh that line is so deep now and this and oh my skin's terrible i need to whereas uh, I'd, I'd say the majority of men don't do that we, you know we can get away with having a not in Liverpool maybe in Bondi I think, <laughs> yeah I think, I think I think maybe there's been a hypercritical and and again it's just you know part of this lockdown is is made people look at themselves a little bit differently and you know yeah. you know thinking that they've aged and thinking that you know because of all of the treatments have now wore off and they can't get to the practitioner you know they, they're, they're feeling the effects of it but I I, I'm in agreement with I'm in agreement with with Tim on this is the fact that you know it's a global thing because everybody's being locked down globally. It's not it's not one particular brand. It's not one particular area. It's pretty much a, a, across the board. So it's something else. Serious question. I mean, you sort of raised it degradation of skills. I've joked with Jake over the last few months about not wanting to hop on a plane anytime soon because <laughs> these pilots have had their feet up for the last twelve months, and I'm not keen to hop on one until they've done a few test runs. But would you? see any degradation of your skills and this is i guess a question for you and for, for jake by not injecting for it and probably more so in the uk because you've had so much time indoors and not being able to treat your patients are you seeing a degradation of skills not sort of doing it every day i don't think you'll see a degradation of skills i think it'll be a psychological uh, a psychological thing because it, even you know when you were doing surgery you, you you'd have two weeks off on holiday you come back and you're thinking i don't know I don't know whether I'd be able to do that again, mm -hmm. but you know your professional training just just kicks in. It's just part of what you can, you know, what what you do. And again, it's with it's with medical aesthetics. I think there's an apprehension on you thinking about, and I think this is where the fear comes. Can I still do it? Am I able to do this? What are my results going to be like? Am I going to lose my skill set? I don't think you'll lose that skill set. I just think it's the psychology based around. The fact that you've been out of the game for a, for a while, um, so I, I, I wouldn't say you'd lose the skill set. I think it's the fear of losing the skill set, which is which is the which is the key. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a bit like um, like you said, you come back from a two week holiday and you almost need to get back into the gear again. It's not that you've forgotten; you've, you've got the muscle memory, but 
it's almost like you need to get that sort of uh, pace of, of life again and, and sort of get into the groove. But it, I, I don't, yeah, I agree. I don't think you forget. Well, I certainly didn't. But um, yeah. Now, kind of on a similar vein, but kind of a more broader question about resistance, you know, you, you occasionally get injected saying, I found someone who's resistant to X or Y brand. How common is that truly in your own experience? Or I don't know if you can throw some stats at us. And and if you did find someone who you thought was resistant, what do you do about it? Well, from my own personal um, opinion, I've had no one who's been resistant. So I've had zero resistance. It's interesting because you've, you, you see publications and you see uh, people who have... Um, no um, no response, have no neutralizing antibodies. And you see people who work and they have neutralizing antibodies within their serum. So it sounds, wow, that's a bit, that's a bit weird. You know, I think what we've got to think about first is, is the patient. And for me, normally the patients who say my Botox doesn't work is the patients who need more than Botox. So they come in looking like a leather handbag. They've got <laughs> deep lines. They come once every two years. Yep. They've got super strong muscles. Their expectations are so yep. high. And they want you to fix it all for 200 quid. So what they mix lack of effect with is that the line's still being there. Yep. There's no movement left. But, you know, they're saying, well, I've still got a line. Well, yeah, you have. Yeah, well, it, it, that normally goes well. You know, we've all had these conversations. If I can share with you a, a conversation I had with um, uh, three very eminent uh, people within uh, the world of toxin, um, um, I sat between them, I shoehorned myself between um, Andy Pickett, Massimo Signori, and Dirk Dressler. They got around about a thousand publications between them. And I shoehorned myself one lunchtime between them. I thought, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make myself a pest. I'm going to ask you questions. And one of the questions I asked them was about resistance. And they just looked at me as if to say, what are you, what are you going on about? And I spoke to Dirk Dressler, who was the professor of movement science in Hanover in Germany. He's been using toxins since the 80s in massive doses. He's had no resistance. Yeah. Not one case. And it goes to show you, you know, you know how prevalent is it? Are we... Do we have true non-responders or do we have the fact that we just haven't assessed the patient properly and managed their expectations? For me, toxins all about dose dependency. So yeah. treating to effect. It's, you know, I do have this saying, you may have seen it, Jake. It, it's a very easy skill to acquire, but a very difficult one to perfect. That is, that is, that is toxin. So personally, a big fat zero in statistics for me. I haven't seen any. Yeah, I found one. He's from Melbourne, and he actually contacted me saying, "I'm going to fly up. I've tried all these products. I think I'm resistant." And I didn't believe him. Trust me, I didn't believe him. I gave him an elephant-sized dose of my preferred brand, first of all, Botox. Didn't work, and I was amazed. I was like, "Wow, okay, fair enough." On his own request, because I didn't agree with the science, he wanted Disport. So we tried Disport same thing and I gave him a huge dose nothing worked and I sort of put my hands up and I thought well look we could test for antibodies and you know there are ways of doing this it's very expensive and he'd have to pay for it himself but I sort of accepted that he might be my first and only person in 13 years that is truly resistant but you know you never know it's very very rare I think is what I'm saying 
Well, what's interesting is how people go from different brands. It's still Botchman and Toxin Type exactly. One, and 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 you know, I think the theory should be going to Botchman and Toxin Toxin B. Yes, again, Maya Block, those type of things. Expensive, it wears off quick, and it's things like mad. And again, for me, if if someone comes in and said I've been to six places and nobody's got my Botox right, I'm not going to be the seventh <laughs> victim. I just I just won't treat them. So I just don't get. I just don't get myself involved in those positions anymore. Yeah, um, yeah no, he, he, he wasn't sort just, of red flag. He was just a curious person who wanted to give it another crack. And I said, sure, if you want to give it a crack, no worries. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting... It's an, but again, the, the tests which have been done to test on immunogenicity are very different. Western blot, immunoassays, at least the tests... We, there's no standardization with any of these any of these tests as well within the literature. So again, it's that's just typically aesthetic medicine. One of the major uh, contraindications for undergoing these treatments is being pregnant, breastfeeding, and so on. Um, so obviously, you know, as an injector, you you avoid treating people during that period. But you know, curious as to are there any papers that back up this claim? Um, and you know, what's your explanation for not treating people um, if there isn't um, during this period? Not, not in my knowledge. It's, there's no, there's no publications to say it does or it doesn't, and that's the big question: does it or doesn't it cause a problem? What you don't want to be doing is putting yourself in a position where it could, you know, because you're going to have to try to defend your position. So if you avoid, then you're mitigating that risk straight away. There's one other group I do put in with the pregnancy and breastfeeders, and that's patients undergoing IVF. Such a very delicate stage of the. Uh, you know, conception or, you know, trying to conceive. I don't want to introduce anything that could be a confounding factor in them not conceiving. So I, over the years, found that, you know, conversations with people who are undergoing IVF, you know, what's the evidence on toxin? You know, can it cause a problem? And I just thought, I'm just going to take these, this this group of patients out of the, out of the equation because I didn't think about it until I uh, got sort of questions raised to me so i've i've had ivf again no evidence but again just remove any sort of confounding factors i can't believe i read a paper that you haven't read lee i'm i'm astounded but i did find one today is this the, the pregnancy, on pregnancy yeah uh, this is by Mitchell Brin et al. And it's called Pregnancy Outcomes Following Exposure to Onobotulinum Toxin A, which is basically the brands that we use. In summary, and, and this is a really, really short summary, they looked at 130, well, they, they in, eventually included 137 pregnant women were included in the study. And in short, yes, there was, I think, one abortion, uh, a couple of fetal abnormalities, etc. But statistically, no different to you know, without Botox. And these were people treated with Botox for medical conditions like, you know, chronic migraine and bruxism and deemed to be medically necessary during pregnancy. But I mean, yeah, I, I'm totally on board with you, Lee. Just avoid it. it you know, having babies is hard enough and stressful enough. Yeah. Go and have your babies or try and have your babies. And if, if you know, if you genuinely have a period where you're having a break from IVF or whatever, well, I'm happy to, but yeah. you know, the, I have found recently, just in the last week, actually, two patients were in a similar position, and they were sort of trying to drip feed me information to see what I would say, and and almost coerce me into injecting well, them. And I yeah. found that quite controversial, and actually, you know, had a, a, a sort of a strong chat with them about that. Yeah. Well, um, 
in all my years of owning clinics and having lots of injectors and, you know, tens of thousands of patients come through clinics that I've been part of, you do occasionally come across the patient that gets really irate when you tell them that you can't inject them because they're pregnant. And you just think to yourself, what? <laughs> you, you'll get, you're abusing my team and me because we won't inject yeah. you because you're pregnant. It's like, it's kind of it's bizarre. bonkers. Yeah. It forms part of the consent in the SPC as well. So again, you, you know, you, you, you're guided by a lot of things. Um, so I'm, I'm truly amazed as well, Jake, that you've read a paper that I've, I've not read. So <laughs> I'll send it to you after. I'll WhatsApp it to you. I was amazed, Thanks actually. Me, I, I didn't think that, that wasn't existed. Is that, it's from 2016, I think. So it's, you know, it's not, it's not ancient. I think he set you up there, Lee. No, honestly, I didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a proper stitch of that yeah. I was scared to come on this podcast because I know Lee's going to throw <laughs> papers at me and stats and I'm going to be like, whoa, you know, bow down to, bow down to Lee. But uh, no, I'll send it to you after. Don't worry. Thank you so much. Now, in the opposite way, and I've never come across this, we're told in in the prescribing information in our little uh, leaflet in Botox, don't give toxin, should I say, to patients who are on a class of antibiotics called aminoglycosides, because apparently they augment the uh, the effect of of the toxin and make it stronger. Have you ever seen that? Is yep. that true? Why does it yeah, do that? Potenti- it potentiates the effect. The effect. Ne- never, never seen it. I mean, can't think of a, a a big cohort of patients who come in who are on sort of long term aminoglycosides. They're normally a sort of a week, ten days type of thing. So yeah. I have no problems to do treating those patients on aminoglycosides uh, with it. Uh, it's you know, facts. You could just lower the dose, couldn't yeah. you? And then review them in when they finish the. An- the antibiotics and uh, again you know you could argue the fact that you're giving them a minimum inhibitory dose so you're actually putting less in which is which is technically better well yeah we should have everyone on gentamicin and get six months out of their tox instead of three or four <laughs> yeah vancomycin erythromycin everything yeah just, just, <laughs> yeah maybe just mix it up with it yeah just inject it in <laughs> So it's now time for the controversial question of, of the night, Leo. I was a little bit premature there um, with aspirations, and I, I feel like I'm honoured to ask this question because it's, it's probably everyone's ears are listening to this is probably pricked up right now. So, again, from an outsider's perspective looking in, you know, talking to Jake and seeing things online and talking to various experts on the podcast that we've had, it seems to be a topic that divides people quite passionately into two groups, those that aspirate and those that do not. And each opposing side is, you know, very um, attached to their perspective on it, um, sometimes maybe emotionally, I'm not too sure. What is your stance? I guess the simple question to you firstly is, do you aspirate or do you not? And if you don't, can you explain to us why? And oh, what and oh, what is it for those people oh, okay, listening yes. thinking, what the hell are we talking about? Yes. <laughs> okay, so um, aspiration uh, used in medicine to ensure that you're not intravascular with with the drug that you're injecting. So that could be anything from from lidocaine or anything subcutaneously, steroids, uh, pretty much anything that you can administer. And what it is, you draw back uh, some negative pressure on your syringe with the handle. And what you're looking for is blood in the lumen of the needle. So that would indicate that to most people that you're intravascular, so inside a blood vessel. Do I aspirate? No. <laughs> Should I? 
well, lots of people tell me that I should. And I think we've got to go back to eminence and evidence. And I know that Jake will aspirate. I know that for a fact because... Did you see him on Instagram? Is, <laughs> no, not just that. Because I don't know anybody who represents Allegan who doesn't. Uh, I don't know anybody. Greg Goodman, Stefania Roberts, yeah, I mean, Sarah Hart, but I mean, plenty I, of them. I mean, on, I, yeah, I, I, all of those people who write the papers on how futile it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't. And the reason I don't do it is is because I don't think it's a safety test. And that's what people are using it for. So is there evidence to suggest that it's safer to aspirate? No, there isn't. There isn't a comparative study for people who don't aspirate and aspirate or whether they're safer. So we don't have that data straight away. So it doesn't make you a safer injector. It makes you look like you're a safer injector to people because, again, somebody did it once on a stage and everybody followed. It's the emperor's new clothes. And for me... I always used to think scientifically about it and to think about just what Greg Goodman and Mark Magnuson and all those guys, you know, you've got your own, you only got yourselves to blame because most of these guys on the, on, on with the literature, they're Aussies, Kiwis and there's, you know, and there's some really big names yeah. within that paper. And what you've got to think about is how accurate is this as a test? So if I was saying to you within medicine, Jake, then I'm going to give you a test which is 30% reliable. Are you going to really bring that into clinical practice if it's 30% reliable? But, but we tend to accept those numbers within aesthetic medicine because that's all we've got. Yes. If I said, if I said to you, are you going to inject with calcium hydroxyapatite, which you can't aspirate with? You'd say, well, no. Well, that's the product you need to aspirate more than anything with, but you can't do it because the study tells us that you can't aspirate with radius. But that necessitated more than anything else because it's non-reversible. So when we look at it as a safety test, it's not very safe. And when you look at uh, Greg Goodman, Greg Goodman, is this is the, the brand new paper. It's not the first time he's opened Pandora's box with this. And as Dave said, this polarizes people. It's an incredibly passionate subject. It, it, it really, when you're on stage, Jake, you know this more than most people. It, it could even say whether you're a good or a bad injector, you know, whether you aspirate or not, because people would judge you based on whether you aspirate or not. Yeah. And until we bring the science forward, until we start to have a debate about it, we don't argue in science. We only debate. And until we debunk the myths of aspiration, then we can move on and it will always polarize people. So let's look at some of the evidence that we have. If we look at the publications, so if we start off with people like Wayne Carey, Gabby Cassabonna, Yanni Von Logan, Richard Torbeck, all of those people, then the heterogeneity within those studies is, is, is massive. You can't even compare them because some people have got blood, some people have got ink, some people are removing 90% of the filler, some people have having a 0.2 pullback. Some people are using different biology to others. Yeah. And this is all on the assumption is that you're going to inject your filler exactly where your needle is. As soon as that needle tip moves, aspiration is pointless because you're aspirating on that tiny, tiny space. So if you get a positive aspirate, you don't inject. If you get a negative aspirate, then again, 
it goes back to your original point. If I don't get no blood in the syringe, I have to stay here. I have to. As soon as I move, and this is controversial because what most papers say is that you have to keep the tip moving. Yeah. But aspiration, you have to keep it still. So it doesn't make any sense in, in that the blood in the lumen of the syringe is as highly specific, but it's low sensitivity. And using it as a test, a safety test, we can't have that like that. We can't have something which is high and low. They both have to be high or they both have to be low. We get rid of one and we accept the other. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. So when we look at it like that, then we start to think, okay, so were the syringes that we use to aspirate, were they ever designed to aspirate? Not to my knowledge. No, they weren't. Is the fluid inside traditionally a Newtonian fluid like we would do within medicine and dentistry? We have self-aspirating syringes with lidocaine. No, it's like honey or jam. It's it's a non-Newtonian. The negative pressure, again, the vasculature in the face is so small, some of them, you're going to create almost that negative pressure where the vessels are going to collapse. So you, you're not going to get a positive aspiration. So what does what does what does it mean? The blood in the does it mean that you're intravenous, intraarterial, or extravascular? It's not telling us that. It's just telling us that there's some blood there and please move the syringe. So when we look at it as a test, there's a problem. The test is unreliable. There's no evidence to suggest it's safer. It lulls you into false insecurity. You can't move the tip. You have to place a big bolus in exactly that position because you're going to have to do things like unprime the needle again, put a fresh needle on every injection. And people don't do that. And the other thing about aspiration is, you did start me off on this, <laughs> is that people say, I only aspirate in these areas. Yeah. So that makes the assumption that there's no blood vessels in other parts of the face. Oh, I only aspirate the temple and the nose. So what about the forehead, the lips, the nasolabial folds, the chin? Because they've all had cases of blindness. So why aren't you aspirating in there? So for me, it's not about a safety test for the patient. It's about... Do I feel like I'm doing the right thing as an injector? And does it make me feel safe? That's what it says to me that the aspiration test does. Because from a scientific point of view, it holds no water. Because as soon as that tip moves, it's pointless. And again, it lulls you into a false sense of security. It allows people to inject faster with higher boluses. And we know that this is the problem, especially with the ophthalmic circulation problems especially the severity of VOs, it's all about pressure and the amounts that you're putting in. So for me, the aspiration case is, is pretty closed. I've been challenged hundreds and hundreds of times on stage, but nobody's given me an answer based around it. And I'll finish my part of the debate by saying that every case report that I've ever read has had a negative aspiration. Every single VO, every single case of blindness has had a negative aspiration because if it was positive, you wouldn't inject. So no. it tells you everything mm. about aspiration. I've always wondered... Are they uh, telling the truth? <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered whether they have sort of covered their back a little bit and said, oh, I did of course aspirate. I aspirated. <laughs> uh, when they maybe did or didn't, who knows. Um, just to sort of, um, I guess, explain my own thinking, uh, I've evolved over time and I, th I think, you know, what Dr. Jake Sloan does in his own clinic versus on stage teaching for a brand is quite different. 
uh, because I'm teaching a method for you know Allegan or whoever I represent or Face Coach. I also teach for a company called Face Coach, and but I do Bell Cairo with them. But um, you know, I think anyone would be stupid to be so dogmatic about this that they don't think about you know, the bigger picture. And like you said, you just need to question the science. Forget who said what or, you know, it doesn't matter what filler you're using or is it cannula needle. Just think about what are what are you doing and be prepared to, to be wrong occasionally. So, you know, having read that paper recently and, and obviously there's papers gone by, I think you should just try these things out and see see how comfortable you are and see if the logic makes sense. So some of the things that I think you, you would prescribe to Lee and... and you know, uh, Professor Goodman and, and others, you know, just inject slowly, small amounts, try and have your needle bevel sort of flush to the bone rather than sort of perpendicular. I, I don't know where you sit with sort of moving, making little micro movements with your needle if you're using a needle down on bone. Do, do you do that? Again, you've got, to, you've got to think about the possibilities of a moving tip. This there's two ways you can look at it. One is that if you're static and you're inside the vessel and you give a bolus, then, you know, that's a problem. The other is, is that if you're not in a vessel and you start moving the tip about and then you find one, then that's the problem. And I always make the analogy of like, if you're looking for your phone when it's dark <laughs> on the bed and you do this with your hand, you then you'll smash find water it. over as well. <laughs> so again, again, this is the great thing about aesthetic medicine, Jake. It, it really is the fact that it's embryonic in its development. There's still so much that we need to learn, so much that we need to uh, to think about how science is being pushed forward. You know, in terms like rheology's changed so much since the very early days, and and things like now practice, safer practice, all the things you said. You know, low pressure injections, small amounts, cannula where appropriate. Um, know your 3D anatomy, use targeted digital pressure, use the patient as a barometer to pain if they can feel it very distant to the site or it's getting increasingly painful. Those, for me, are more of a, a, a safety uh, precaution than simply aspiration. How I think of aspiration in my head is wearing a seatbelt and driving at 300 miles an hour. You think it's going to save you, but in fact, you should be slowing down. I actually wanted to challenge you, Jake, on something you said because you said that when you're on stage and you're teaching, you'll follow the corporate mantra and mm -hmm. you'll do what you should be doing and you're teaching people but then in your private practice, I don't know whether you do or whether you don't, but mm -hmm. how do you reconcile that in your own head if you're teaching people something that you don't truly believe in? How do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? It's, it's not Is it dangerous? Yeah. No, it's not that I do or don't believe. I'm, I'm teaching a method, a prescribed method by, by someone else and, and whether I teach for Lee or face coach or Allegan, there's a method and a protocol. I'm, I'm teach, I've got to teach something. I can't just go off, off piste and just do whatever I do because that's not the point of being a, a KOL. But the thing that I will say about aspiration is even if you don't believe in it, you are in some ways educating, you know, I, I tend to you know, a lot of educational events are for more junior injectors who, who maybe know nothing about injecting. And so even if you don't believe in it, and even if you go away to your own practice and, and you evolve it and you read a paper and you decide to do something differently, it's introduced the idea of safety into injectables rather than ignoring it. That is why I still think that it's relevant, but to question it yourself when you go into yeah. your own practice. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. I just wanted to, I was just... I'll, I'll, yeah. echo, I'll echo those words... Jake, it's highlighting safety 
is paramount within the industry. I, I, I sincerely echo those those words. Um, one of the things about aspiration is, especially from a Toxane point of view, we have faculty KOLs who aspirate and others who don't, but we've all got our reasons why we do and, and why we don't. And I think that's always the thing that you you need to ask yourself and answer consideration and justification of, of, of what you're doing. And that's the great thing about Tioxane for us is that we're, uh, we, we have the opportunity to rationalize and to talk rather than having a philosophy. Because one of the things that we don't have is an internationally uh, recognized way to aspirate. There is no standard. So people do a tiny pullback, big pullback, syringe off the end, filler everywhere. People only give the first of the one mil and there's not much negative pressure you can pull back. And some people aspirate all the way through. Some people change the needle. Some people don't. We don't have a standard to, to assess anyone by as the gold standard. So I implore people if they aspirate to continue to aspirate. I'm, I'm not telling people not to aspirate. What I'm telling them to do is incorporate other, other things into their clinical practice, which will help to mitigate any risk of intravascular injection. Yeah. So the, the take-home message is if you aspirate, still do, still all, the do all the other safety things, inject slowly, keep your tip moving, use cannula where appropriate and so on. Yeah. Sorry, Jake. Absolutely. I had to ask you a tough question. I, I mean, I felt bad for Lee. You stitched him up with the study. I felt like I had to get... <laughs> no, I don't think it's tough. I think it's a perfectly uh, valid question, yeah. you know, because I've sort of said two things at the same time. Going on to cannulas, um, you know, th there are plenty of studies and a bit of mantra that will say a 25-gauge cannula is inverted commas safe and, and you go thinner than that and, and suddenly it turns into a needle and it's unsafe. What's your thoughts on that, Lee? I, I, I think we should just remove the word safe from aesthetic medicine. <laughs> as soon as we do that, the better. we just got to talk about risk, whether it's high, moderate or low risk. And a cannula traditionally has been low risk. You, you've, you've obviously seen the, the, the paper which has come now and said one in 6,000 cases with a needle will cause a VO and one in 45,000 will cause a VO with a cannula. So when you're looking at statistics like that, then you would choose the lower risk option, which is the cannula. Conversely with that, there was 20, um, 28 cases of severe um, vascular compromise uh, in a referral center in, in Asia, and 25 of those were with a cannula. And so around about 89% of the severe occlusions are with cannula. So it goes to show you that maybe we're overestimating the safety or, you know, that word I don't like, the, you know, the safe approach with cannulas. I think you just have to be as vigilant and as diligent with a needle as you are with a cannula because I don't think I've ever seen anybody, Jake, and I don't know whether you have, aspirate with a cannula. I've never seen anyone do it. I have. They feel like and that, it didn't, that, that's... And it was stupid because immediately they were, you know, fanning their product through. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what exactly. the hell are you doing? Yeah. Um, can I ask a question? Do you, do you inject lips with cannula or only a needle? Um, normally needle, but there'll be certain situations I use a cannula, but, you know, normally needle. So if you're injecting the lip with a needle, and would I be correct in saying that lips are the most commonly injected area on the on the face? I would guess it's certainly up there if, it, if not the, yes. Okay, so if you're predominantly injecting with a needle in an area that is the most <laughs> treated area on the face, and the lips are known as an area that 
you know, a higher risk for an occlusion. Doesn't that skew your statistic? Um, well, I was going to add to that, and I'm sure Lee will sort of agree with this, that this is the, the great uh, anti-aspiration sort of argument that most people will do lips with a needle. They won't aspirate because they're constantly moving and threading and ferning and so on. And they're comfortable with that because they're not aspirating and, and they're doing what they do. And yet, you know, other places they'll they'll sort of fall back and say, I've got to aspirate here. So th- that is the counterintuitism of of aspirating for, for me is that most people will do a lip without aspirating because they're moving and, and that makes sense. Mm. Again, it's the same with a deep piriform space injection or a nasal labial fold. You do the combination. You'll see them aspirate in the deep piriform space, but not into the nasal labial fold because they're moving constantly here. And that's, that could be the position of a large facial artery. So, whereas you're likely not likely to encounter it deep in the deep piriform space. But again, it's, it's these, it's these things that we need to sit down and we need to talk about. And, um, and Jake and myself being, KOLs, we have the platform to be able to to start to talk about and open a dialogue and a narrative based around our experiences and where we're going in the future with these things. Because I think one of the most important things which we tend to neglect or underestimate is the importance of understanding three-dimensional anatomy. Because I, I think that everything that we tend to see within aesthetic medicine is two-dimensional. You know, you'll see people draw in a facial artery here. Or if the patient doesn't have a facial artery, or if they have a massive transverse facial artery, and the rest of the face is perfused by the dorsal nasal and, and uh, infraorbital. Again, this is we need to start to get into people's heads that anatomy is so aberrant, so wild, so very, very varied. It could be anywhere, and this is increases your level of diligence and vigilance when it comes to injection. Because how many times have you heard people saying, "Oh, you can inject here; it's safe." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On stage as well. It's not it's, it's not just yeah, exactly. amateur injectors. It's yeah. Yeah. So again, it's just taking the fact that they're looking at two-dimensional anatomy and that they're you know, they're that confident that there's not a blood vessel there. Yeah. It's uh it's bewildering. So Lee, moving on to another sort of filler not controversy, but but th- there is some I think misinformation out there, but these this concept of delayed onset nodules. Firstly, can you just explain what they are super briefly? And then, you know, do you agree that these can happen with any filler on the market? And, and what's your understanding of why they occur? So a delayed onset nodule it depends on whose definition you use it. It's it's a um it's it's an area of um it can either be inflammatory or non-inflammatory of uh, accumulated filler or an immune response uh, where filler has been injected two weeks to one month, depending on who, who you want to, up to a year to two years further down the line, um, that appear as a result of your intervention. Mm-hmm. Can All fillers are guilty and capable of causing delayed onset nodules. So when you look at delayed onset nodules, you've got the non-inflammatory component, which is just too much filler placed in a bolus inside the muscle, too and you can eradicate that pretty easily with handy one of these. Then you look at the inflammatory, and all fillers will elicit an immune response. Christensen said that in 2007, and it's 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 not changed now. It's a foreign body. It has foreign body particles have antigens there, which will incite an immune response. It depends on how big your immune response is, is going to be. 
So no filler is immune to being immune. And people were saying about polycryptolactone had no incidence of granulomas. Well, that's been disproven now because there's, there's now a case, two cases with, with that. So it's now all fillers. Now, some will cause more than others. And I'm not going to get controversial about this because there is data out there to suggest that certain fillers do elicit more of an, an immune response, but they're all guilty and they're all capable. The incidence of them depends on, again, the literature and what type of brand you're using. For me, it's very much underreported. You're looking at around about 0.02% uh, FDA up to 4, 4.5%, yeah. which is huge. So we've got the numbers. We've got, we've got metrics. And whether those metrics are skewed, well, well, we'll never know until we have more data coming through. But what we do know is that they do exist. All fillers cause them. And, you know, why do they, you know, why do they, why do they appear? Well, again, one of the interesting things about delayed onset nodules is, is the life cycle of hyaluronic acid filler. Around about five to nine months into injecting, it starts to break down. It gets into smaller pieces and we're exposing different sorts of antigens then to the immune system. And what we know as well is that these longer chains get broken into smaller chains. And low molecular weight chains will be pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So these are the things we already know. We know this about normal hyaluronic acid, not just about cross-linked. This, this is what happens. Uh, Stern done all, has pretty much done all the work on this. And what we don't know is the complete etiology of it. We don't understand the mechanism. If we did, we'd pretty much eradicate it. But we don't. So, so there's thoughts on the fact that it's injected into the muscle. You know, um, Greg Goodman has looked at the, the, the difficulties of injecting into uh, kinetic muscles and exposes new antigens. Again, uh, my good friend Francesco Bernardini did it for the same for the lower eyelid. And why we get edema. Again, because this breakdown and it releases new products. Others is that people will have an immune response which just doesn't like the fact that there's filler there. And you'll have that typical few monocytes sniffing around to big multi-giant cells, encapsulating it and thinking, this is foreign, I don't want it to go anywhere else, I'm going to encapsulate it. And there you get the granulomas. And again, it's, we're starting to see around about less than 1% of granulomas. But the thing about a granuloma is, we can only call it a granuloma if we have a histopathological report. Yeah. So it goes back to our for your very first question, Jake, on why we call them delayed onset nodules, because we pretty much don't know what, what they are. They're a nodule which has appeared later down the line. And that's pretty much layperson's term, but it's actually a true description of what it is. We don't understand it. Now, how we're treating these is changing. And what we used to do with these for the non-inflammatory was to just just highlights them out and worked perfectly well. It was an operator. It was a it was a product um, problem. But these things that you see in which have uh, an immune or an, uh, an infectious inflammatory component, we're going to have to treat them very differently. And one of the big things now is that they're looking at intralesional steroids is is starting to form the mainstay of how we're treating these because it's about it's about getting you know getting rid of the. Uh, of the nodule itself yeah. um, because some people 
you know, they'll use antibiotics. And nine months down the line, they still still got a problem. What we found within the literature, interlesional steroids, pretty much clear up in a couple of weeks. So the evidence is now suggesting that we use interlesional steroids. Not everybody's comfortable with using because they're scared about subdermal atrophy, telangiectasias, thinning of the skin. And what we know is that most fillers are subcutaneous anyway. So you're not going to do that because you're going to be injecting into the dermis, which is going to be the problem. And we know that um, delayed onset nodules are more prevalent in intradermal. So back down to injecting. Uh, injection depth is incredibly important as well. So delayed onset nodules, we don't have the answers, but we're starting to understand the treatments so much, so much better now. So antibiotic cover and intralesional steroids it seems to be the way forward. And I want to keep you posted on this because we're just finishing the guidelines within the UK with the complications group on delayed onset nodules. So all the information will be in there for you pretty soon. Now, next question, and I don't know if David is aware of this phenomenon, which is why I've jumped in and asked this one. So filler swelling and COVID vaccine, that's a new phenomenon that sort of, you know, sort of made the headlines that I think three people in the Moderna study, which is one of the vaccines, reported facial swelling. They didn't say delayed onset nodules. They didn't say filler related, although that was the presumption. They just said facial swelling and it turned out that these people had had filler before. So I, I guess, you know, my take on delayed onset nodules is exactly what you just said, Lee. But in my experience, when I've seen it in patients, it's a transient thing that tends to happen when they're sick, ill, sinus, urine infection, got a wound, they've had an operation, something has made the body immunocompromised, inflamed, potentially infected if they've got you know, a wound somewhere, and that has triggered the body to become inflamed. And it's not the fillers, it's not an issue with the filler per se, but it, the filler being there has, has, has created this sort of um, you know, cascade of inflammation around the filler. And 99 times out of 100, within 72 hours, it's gone on its own without any treatment. What happened to me? <laughs> yeah, it did happen to you, didn't yeah, it? I, I got sick, I got some bug, and then I looked like I'd been stung by a, a hive full of wasps for about 24 hours, and then I, I was fit for public consumption again. But it was pretty interesting, and, and, and it was tender to touch. Yep. It was quite full on. It happens, I've had mild responses before, but there was one I was like, holy shit, I look like a different person. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is this is nothing new, is it, Jake? You no. know, we've seen this over the years with with different reports on people um, uh, reporting a flu-like illness and then subsequent uh, swelling of all areas with 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 filler. So it's not it's nothing new. I think I think there's a mass hysteria going on with COVID at the moment. It tends to be we've we've put a name to something and demonised it, and now it's 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 the cause of everything. And if you look at that study, I mean, Shauna Rice did the, has done a paper. I'll send it to you if you haven't read it. It's called The Art of Prevention COVID um, uh, Preparation for Practice. And within that, she, she very nicely puts the context. The three cases which, which people are drumming on about now with the Moderna vaccine. And one of those cases out of the three, this is out of, 15,000 patients. One of those patients had already had previous swelling from the filler before the vaccine with a with an illness, like, like you just described. 
What's interesting about this, two in the placebo group all had swelling. But we don't jump up and down over that. We just look at the three from the Moderna and say, oh, my God, three people. Uh, It's, you know, she put it into some context about if your patients are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed, they've had a history of this, let's just think about when we're going to place the fillers, maybe four weeks before, four weeks after, eight weeks before, eight weeks after. Let's be ready to see if it is because we don't have the data. And I can speak from the UK. We don't have the data in the UK because the first four groups are 75 years old and above, and they're patients who don't come in for fillers. So we're not going to see these numbers until we start to see the people in the 25, 30, 40 categories come in. And if we start to see an implosion of uh, filler-related vaccine issues, then we've got to start putting the data together. Yeah, be prepared to re- you know record any weirdness, but these things have been happening all the time. It's just the fact that now we've got we're in heightened awareness of vaccines. This happens with the flu vaccine every year. A vaccine will elicit an immune response. If your body has something there which looks a little bit foreign, it's going to go, well, I'm going to have a little look around. I'm going to send an immune uh, uh, immune cells over. And if you look a bit weird, then we're going to have to deal with you. Yep. That's what vaccines do. Vaccines elicit immune response. And people giving steroids, the vaccine at the same time, they need to get their heads a little wobble. <laughs> Because it's actually going going against what what you're trying to do. And the thing about it is, is that one of the things that we don't prescribe, Jake, is time. We don't have that in our our medicine cabinet. Do you know what? Can we just look at it for the next two weeks? Let's watch for waiting. Let's reassure you. Because most granulomas, cystic granulomas, which are uh, formed with HA fillers, completely resolve on their own within a year. Yeah, but we can throw nine months of antibiotics at them when the filler's just going to degrade anyway. So, again, we're going to have to step back to go forward. Yeah. And this is the important thing about it is we're going to have to start to think about it because we get a little bit excited when something new appears. I mean, you know, everyone who's had a vaccine would probably say, oh, my arm is a bit sore, my muscles got a bit sore, uh, you know, I might have had a, a low-grade fever. This is normal. But I guess the difference will be that pretty much everyone on the planet, barring you know money or you live in the Amazon, is going to have this vaccine at some point if you want to get on a plane. Let's just be real about that. So this will yeah, be listen. kind of a very unique situation where we'll potentially expose all those people who've had filler to a transient problem. That, that you know we might see more numbers of it, but I don't see it as like a new problem. Exactly what you said. Well, we're going to have to start to balance it against every other vaccination, so every, every everything else that we have an immune response to. Going back to Shauna Rice's this publication, there is now a genetic component. Um, people with certain HLA um, um, antigens and within their bodies are more susceptible to these things. So maybe there's a genetic predisposition to this. Maybe you've just got an immune system that just is waiting for a parasite or a virus to, and, and it it's just on heightened heightened alert. So, again, until we have the data, then let's not be hysterical about it. Let's let's be calm, rational, systematic practitioners, and deal with the problems as they arise. Let's not predict like Nostradamus, doom and gloom <laughs> over over the vaccine and 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 filler because this has been happening since being injecting filler. It's nothing new. Um, again, just let's put it into a bit of context. So, um, 
the big topic, um, well, I guess it's a topic that strikes fear into most injectors or if not all injectors and some patients who know about it, but surprisingly not a lot of them do, is the risk of blindness. Um, I guess we sort of alluded to it a little bit when we were referring to uh, we were talking about um, aspiration and so on, but just to sort of deal with it directly, can you just explain what actually happens in this sort of complication, um, I guess, for people that haven't heard about it, really? So I think what people need to know is that the face is linked to the eye and there will always be a channel from anywhere in the external face into the orbit. And uh, again, I've got to give credit to the Aussies here, you know, Ian Taylor and Mark Ashton uh, really looked at the anastomosis between the face and the eye and, and come up with some incredible um, anatomical uh, work. So we know it's linked. It goes down to pressure. If we exceed facial blood pressure, which is around about 166 milligrams of mercury, then we push the filler against the blood flow. And when we release the plunger, then the filler goes retrograde and it normally goes through the biggest exit. And that's normally a branch of the ophthalmic circulation. So it's about pressure. And I always say within all my teachings is that pressure is the enemy. So this is, goes back to the aspiration is very low injection. So it's about exceeding uh, 177 uh, milligrams of mercury. And I read within the publication that the first initial push on our syringe is over 200. So that first, you know, when you get it going first yeah. and, and then you've got that inertia, that's more than 200 milligrams of mercury. So it's about pressure. And it's about, I wouldn't say being unlucky. I'd say, it's about, again, it goes numbers. And those numbers, again, I've read, it's about one in 800,000 you've got a risk of vision loss. And that actually frightened me because I thought it was millions, millions to one. Was this that one in 180,000? One in in 800,000. Okay, because we had um, an oculoplastic surgeon on who has tried to pretty meticulously with a couple of um, KOLs around the world try to get a figure. He thought it was around... Well, you can't say exactly because it's hard to get the data on how much filler is used and so on. But he thought it might be lower, maybe two hundred fifty thousand, maybe five hundred thousand. But it's a guess, isn't it? It's it's you know, and that's really my question about you know blindness. What is the risk, uh, and uh, and what do we do about it? We were talking about it just um, before we started recording, and you said you were writing a paper. Just tell us about your own thoughts on what what we should be doing differently. Well, first, it goes back to all of those things we said about low-pressure injections, understanding 3D anatomy, using a cannula where appropriate. Um, all of the, the basic caveats, really, of, of lower-risk injection. But one of my fears is what to do if your patient loses their sight. You know, what do we do as the non-ophthalmologist? Because Michael Papp's systematic review at the back end of last year said that retrobulbar highlays there's no evidence for it. And in fact, it could be dangerous to use. So it leaves the average Joe like myself worried to think, what should it do? Mm. Again, you know, Greg Goodman and, and his consensus team said, you know, the best thing to do is get your patient to hospital as quick as you can. And I, I certainly agree with that. I'm, I'm, but I'm very fortunate. I have a high hospital pretty much five minutes from my practice. Yeah. So it's, for me, there's, there's, it's about the alternatives of what we can do and what we should do. And when I read Michael Papp's paper, it said, 
Bulba, Perry Bulba highlays is pointless. More work needs to be done. And that left the question, so what does that average need to then? If you're saying that we shouldn't be using retrobola highlays or it doesn't work, what should I be using? So I started to look at the literature on central retinal occlusion, Eagle study, Cochrane reviews, um, US reports through hospitals. And again, there's no standardized protocol. What they do have is they do have uh, various methods to try to eradicate the problem. And one of those is uh, in, increasing uh, retinal perfusion, and that could be um, a GTN, it can be uh, breathing carbon dioxide, it can be using pentoxifene, it can be using different things. Then it's about dislodging ocular massage, lysis, um, reducing intraocular pressure. And you can do all of those things. You can do those things while you're waiting for an ambulance. So you could drop timolol drops. It takes a while to reduce the intraocular pressure, but by the time they've got to the hospital, they've got through the system, the intraocular pressure would have dropped. You can get them to rebreathe into a, a bag. You can get you can do an ocular massage. They can do ocular massage. There's evidence behind that. You can give them oral um, pentoxifene, which has been proven within a Cochrane review to improve uh, retinal perfusion. You can do these things without sticking a needle in someone's eye. Because the problem is I had before, I had this discussion before, is that you sometimes use compounded hyaluronidases and they come in 10 cc's. And what people would do is that they want the 1,500 units into the back of the eye in a 10 cc shot wow. when the orbital cone only takes 5 cc's. So That's you could crazy. do more damage by giving the hyaluronidase straight away. So again, it's about educating the non-ophthalmologist on what's the best options available. And that's really what the paper's striving to do. It's trying to give you alternative therapies. You know, what can I do whilst I'm getting the patient to the hospital? And one of the things that we found through the case of vision loss in the UK is that the practitioner, who's a consultant surgeon himself, directed the ophthalmic team. Here's highlays. It, here's the evidence. These are the protocols we use. They have no link. They have no awareness. The British Society of uh, Ophthalmologists did a paper, and over 60% of their members are not aware of the link between dermal filler and blindness. Yeah. Wow. We need to increase awareness, and this is what this publication is going to be about. It's going to be about, you know, suggesting we should increase awareness. I've been into A&E's myself. We've had discussions on Facebook lives, Instagram lives about this issue before. And like you said, it's going to take a catastrophe, someone in the government for this to happen to, 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 to force change. Because it's a growing problem, because more and more people injecting, more and more people injecting different areas now with more filler, the volumes going up, the more patients we're seeing, so we're doing things quicker. So that means faster, higher pressure injections. So we're going to see these numbers, unfortunately, rise in the paper which I'm writing about the therapeutic alternatives to retrobulbar highlays will hopefully direct people in not sticking a needle through the back of the eye. It's actually getting into hospital, giving them a protocol and liaising with the ophthalmics to give them the best care. Because when they go to ophthalmics or when they go to A&E, they're going to treat them for a stroke. Yes. A hundred percent. You're going to treat them for a stroke. Ocular motor palsy, stroke. So you've got a window of opportunity which is being breached because they're not aware of the problem. Yeah, that, that's my worry. We, we even if you got somewhere to 
an eye hospital in a timely manner. They could sort of sit around and have people flap around and, and completely misdiagnose or not listen to what you're saying, not have high lays on site and so on. And, and you know, we know that time is the essence. I think uh, one paper suggested maximum 180 minutes, otherwise you're going you're gonna to lose your, your retinal um, sort of perception. So... Yeah, it, it, it's it's a quandary, and I know that um, Angelo Sibas, who we had on, is actually trying to introduce um, this sort of emergency protocol, which he suggested into the oculoplastic and um, ophthalmic training here in Australia. So everyone is aware of it, even though it's rare. Um, and I wonder if there's a mechanism to teach the ED staff as well, because they're the you know they'll be the first responders. Yeah, I mean, the problem with the ED departments, Jake, is the fact that. I sat with 12 consultants and they were really interested in it because it's, it's pretty novel and it's pretty uh, it's new to them. So they were really interested in it. But one, one of their concerns was, are we going to open the floodgates now for A&E for aesthetic problems? That was their biggest concern. Yeah. You know, any bruise, swelling, lump bump, they go to A&E and it clogs up the system. So that's what they were, that's what they were worried about. I think what we've got to do is, is we've got to, We've got to just increase awareness. I think whatever way we do this, you know, I'd be happy to to speak with the oculoplastics, the ophthalmic colleagues across the world to help build a consensus to do this because I've written a publication previously on, on management of vision loss before. And it's something that I always think about. It's the number one fear I think we have as injectors. You know, you, you can battle with a, a skin occlusion and normally win. But when you've got a, an eye problem, then it's a different kettle of fish. And unless you know what you're doing, again, it's it's one of these things where highlights on its own is not going to work. Uh, we know we know I we know if, that. Sorry, I don't know if you can sort of counter this, or it's not a debate, but it looks like there isn't much evidence that getting highlights there is is actually going to be useful anyway. So. It's almost seems like a finality. If you if you've if you've created a vision problem, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of challenges with it, Jake. I mean, if you look at where retrobulbar highlays is injected here in the lateral, then the central retinal artery is medial. So, it, it, even from a geographical anatomical position, it, it's it couldn't be further away from where you need to be in the central retinal artery. It's constriction as it goes in the optic dura. Once it's inside the optic dura. Highlights doesn't pass yeah. the optic cure. We know that. So again, we have we have a, a whole world of problems with this because the anatomy is is not in our favour with it. So we need to hopefully avoid it, but we need to really get the ophthalmics um, really aware of this problem. And the more they're aware of it, and the more they can use their acumen and skill to help uh, help us with anesthetic medicine get better outcomes i feel we could have done a podcast just on this alone it's such a such a such a debatable topic with so many different areas to cover um but let's move on to your role as a kol and educator for tioxin um can you tell us about what your role is there the way you approach education which i understand you know you've got your own way of doing things so tell us about that so the tioxin philosophy is built on uh uh, three three blocks really foundations and that's anatomy aging and assessment technique and product so 
if you understand the aging process, how you assess your patient, you understand the anatomy, you utilize the technique which is safe, you put the right product in the right area with the right amount, then you tend to get good predictable outcomes. So that's what we base on trainer on is is ATP. And this is uh, something very unique from uh, from other companies because other companies have different ways to do it. They have more of a, a, a binary or numeric system where you, you, you put the needle here, you put this amount of filler in and you get these, uh, these results. And for me, one of the things about going back to education with this is that showed us all of the how and none of the why. And what I wanted to do with education is to understand how and why are you doing these these things. So, you know, what's part of the assessment? What's the anatomy here? What are facial layers? What is the rheology of the product? Can you custom fit the rheology to the different tissue layers? All of these things. So it was for me is to is to run with this philosophy, which covers holistically how you're going to treat the patient. So that's what we call the Tioxane approach. And you can focus this on different areas of the face by using the same the three building blocks, anatomy, technique, and product. And other companies do the same. They just they just market it. They just market it different. The difference with us is that we have an FDA-approved filler for dynamic movement, and other companies don't. And I think this is the big thing now. Um, I'm part of a, um, a group that's doing a talk in the US in, in April about overfill syndrome. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about this is overfill syndrome is really, really accentuated when our, when our patients animate. You know, you see the classical golf ball, chipmunk cheat type things. You see the lips not moving. You see the filter columns over all of, the, all of these things. So like, like I said, my role as a KOL is to deliver education in a simplified manner, which is digestible, but more importantly, it's clinically relevant and you can use it within that a lot of stuff which is churned out you just you can't you can't do it in your practice unless you've got unless you've got the right patients and bucketfuls of filler so it's about what i call real world injecting yeah and i'm really interested to know about your mentorship scheme i know you're sort of a mentoring at least some people here in australia i don't know if you're mentoring other people what, what does it involve and and how often are you connecting with people and, and what's, you know, what's your target with it? So I mentor people um, in the UK, you know, all across Europe, Asia, uh, Canada, and uh, in Australasia as well. And what it is, is it's, these people have already got a skill set, the credible, the knowledgeable. It's about really sharing my experiences as as um, a KOL, as, a, as, a, as an injector, as a scientist, as a thinker, and an analyst, and trying to get them to, I, I don't want to say cliche things like the best version of themselves, but to become ready, because I, I don't know about you, Jake, but I was just plonked and I had to learn how to adapt <laughs> yeah. to this KOL world. I didn't have a... a and I think that was pretty unfair to put these younger um, KOLs through this. So what we focus on is a journey. So and this journey involves upskilling them with their anatomy. So we will we will train them in uh, uh, cadaveric training, um, surface topography, 
anatomical variations, depth, distribution of vessels. We'll teach them how to understand rheology. More importantly, how to take the rheology and turn it into biology. So make it clinically relevant. I think I don't think there's a more difficult subject to talk about than rheology. It's yeah. so dry, so difficult. <laughs> then we take them through rheology. We take them through the anatomy. Then we take them through life uh, injection skills, uh, presentation, medical education skills, being a medical educator as being an aesthetic injector, just showcasing the skills. You can't do that. You're delivering a medical education message and that message has to be received and uh, assimilated and used clinically. So we're taking them on a journey from basically giving them all of the useful information they need and then turning them from an aesthetic injector into a medical educator. And until the penny drops that they're a medical educator and they're not some fancy injector standing on a stage, that's when the whole thing changes for them. And for me, as that, my journey was pretty easy because I never classed myself as a world-class injector. I never classed myself as this. What I always thought I was good at was taking something pretty complex and making it simple and making it visual. So that was my skill. My skill was in medical education rather than being a fancy injector or uh, a great speaker. All of those things I've had to work incredibly harder. Simplification of education has been the easy thing because I enjoy it so much. Now, we've got some uh, listener questions uh, that have uh, sent them through to Jake. Was it to you? Yeah, through to you. Yeah, I, 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 I did just well. <laughs> you did a survey. Well, <laughs> because we did um, a full start where we were supposed to record about three weeks ago, and then we oh, you got waited. Lots. So I've got a number of questions to keep this brief, and and, and maybe this is too difficult. I'm just going to ask yes or no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, does Highlays? So we go from the shout out first. So it's Carly Heckendorf, known as Blue Sky Blue Nurse in Sydney. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Carly. Um, does highlays really cause collagen depletion? And I think what she's getting at is there's this claim that sort of sort of a crater on your face, a long term crater. Yes or no? No. Okay. No. Glad glad you said that. Um, we've got here Talisa, the injectables queen nurse in Newcastle, Australia. Australia. Yes. Not, yeah, well. Sorry, not Newcastle in the, in the UK. Yeah. When delivering, Wales, yeah. yeah. When delivering a bolus, um, KOLs have advised to do micro movements when placing the bolus so that you aren't in one spot in the entire time. I think we sort of covered this. What are your thoughts or do you agree? Micro movements, yes, but micro, micro movements because I, I like, like we were discussing with Jake, um, you can introduce into um, <laughs> into a vessel. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the classical um, injection hokey-pokey. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one from Hudson Keplerian. Sorry, I don't know if I've said that right. Uh, is there any evidence that filler can change the bone structure, creating concavities? Uh, I know where she's coming from. This is not a yes or no answer. This is from uh, <laughs> mental. <clears throat> this is this is from ch- uh, uh, filler in the, in the chin. Yeah, um, and they looked at uh, atrophy changes again. Uh, the, the case numbers are very, very small. Well, um, we don't know whether the patients have been subject to orthognathic surgery or anything. So I would say the jury's still out on that one. So no. Okay. You can ask that one. Well, I don't know. How to, is that Fultrum? Fultrum? Fultrum. 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 So this is from Dr. Martina Lavery. Who is a dentist, by the way, in Australia. Ah, there you go. So Fultrum columns or not? <laughs> Explanation mark, nope. question mark. Okay, no. 
That was do you want a rationale for that? Sure. Please we've, we've, do. That, that, yeah, that'd be good. Anatomically, they're dangerous and patients never ask for them. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, do we have any others? Um, we sort of asked, I answered most of these during the course of the... I'm going to summarize this question from Thrive Skin Clinic. Um, Russian lips, yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> I know Lee's answer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um And then Charlotte. Wolfenden, known as ABC Aesthetics by Charlotte, and she's in Queensland, Australia. She's one of our regular listeners. Um, when's your book coming out? She wants to buy it. 12th March. Do we get free copy for, for this? Is that, that was the deal, wasn't we'll, it? We'll do some product placement for you here on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you send me an IA t-shirt and, I, and I'll sign you a okay. copy. Done. Done. We've even got, we can send you a mug as well if you want. <laughs> oh, listen, uh, you know... I'm complete. <laughs> you wait, waiting for this time. Um, wow, that's gone really fast. Um, you know, we've had toilet breaks and cats entering the room and all sorts of things. But wow, it's been um, it's been really educational. And, and I've said this before on the podcast. For someone that's non-medical, I feel so honoured to be able to you know, sit here and have these discussions with with people like yourself. Because it's you know, even though I've been in the industry for so long, it's it's so eye-opening. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I know Jake does too. Yeah, Lee, it's um, always a pleasure to catch up and. One of the things that we will speak about off air, but I think it's important to maybe address on air, is that reaching out to different brand KOLs is important for our industry. Um, you know, I can sit here waving my flag and you can wave your flag, but truthfully, we're both educated people. And like you said, when you meet up at conferences, I think it's so nice to to hear about other people's experiences and learn from each other. And, and you know, I, I don't believe in staying in, in my camp and I know you don't. So I'm glad to have you on the podcast and thanks for sharing your thoughts. Uh, listen, th- thank you so much, both of you, for the time you're considering me to be part of this because it's, uh, you know, it's important. It's important for me to, to, uh, give my knowledge, whether you accept or reject, it's another another thing. But the opportunity to do so is is incredibly heartwarming. So thank you both. Thank you, thank you, Lee. And before we uh, let you go, if people want to get in contact with you, email. If you give out, some people are giving out their phone number. If you want to do this, if you're brave enough, <laughs> give, if you hand out your phone number if you want to. Um, social media. How do people get in touch with you and, and buy your book? Uh, yeah. Lee Walker underscore Academy uh, Instagrams probably or Lee Walker Academy on, on Facebook. If you want to email me, then it's leewalker68 at hotmail.co.uk. And you've just reminded me, how do we access your Facebook group to have these interesting chats about candid um, fuck-ups, for want of a better word? <laughs> so, Thanks, Jay. We now have got to so, tick the explicit box now on the upload. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. <laughs> so, so head over to um, Instagram. It's cm.collaborative. It's... Uh, it's it's the complications in medical aesthetics collaborative it's a global collaborative and just follow the instructions there or you can head to www.cmacworld forward slash on the website and you can uh, you can find all about us there brilliant mate thank you and you know stay safe and i hope you guys start wielding your syringes soon and get out there and uh, we'll, we'll speak soon thanks guys For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.